naked scientist joins us via Zoom. Dr. Chris Smith, welcome. It's always good to have you. Good morning. Are you ready for it? Are we going to jump straight in? The first question in, Dr. Smith, are there any particular foods that regenerate our organs? Uh, we've always been told carrots improve uh, our eyesight. Janine wants to know about the other carrots that we should add mm-hmm. to our basket. Mm-hmm. First of all, Janine, <laughs> on carrots, this is a myth. And as far as we know, the myth can be traced to the Second World War when the British had invented radar and didn't want the Germans to know about it. And so they put out this pervasive story that the reason the RAF pilots were so good is because they fed them loads of carrots. This meant they had excellent night vision and they could see the Germans coming. And in fact, it was radar that was helping to see the Germans coming. And I'm sure that the RAF pilots did have excellent vision, but they already had that. The reason there is a tenuous link to carrots and vision is because in carrots is the chemical beta carotene. Beta carotene is two vitamin A molecules stuck together, which is why it's harmless. Vitamin A is harmful in the body. When you get it into your body, your body breaks apart the beta carotene molecule back into vitamin A molecules, but it does it at the rate at which it needs it. So you can't overdose on carrots, but you need vitamin A to make a pigment in your retina, which is your rhodopsin pigment that sees light and turns light waves into brain waves. So there is a link between eating carrots and vision, but most people, because vitamin A is fat-soluble, are not deficient in vitamin A. There are some parts of the world where people eat a very samey subsistence diet that is chronically low in vitamin A, and they can have eye problems, and they do need supplements, but most people do not, and therefore eating more carrots will not help your vision, but it will help your overall health, because at the end of the day, we all probably don't eat enough fruit and vegetables. The current evidence is that you should have at least five or six portions of fruit and vegetables. And that doesn't mean one pea is a portion. It doesn't mean a glass of red wine is a portion of fruit. Uh, It's a nice thought, but it doesn't work like that. You do need about five or six portions of fruit and vegetables a day as part of a healthy lifestyle. And if we try and take the nutrients out of the food and put them in a pill, it doesn't work. That's what food is for. And we have evolved over millions of years to extract the micronutrients and the calories we need from food in the context in which they are found in food. And if you try to separate the nutrient from the food context, you tend to see that the nutritional value goes away. So there are some circumstances where people are specifically deficient for certain micronutrients and putting those back with a supplement is very helpful. An anemic person does need some iron to push up their haemoglobin level, for example. A person who might have been abusing alcohol for a long period of time might be B vitamin deficient and need some B vitamin supplementation. But most people should eat a healthy diet and that will give you all of the things you need to regenerate every organ in your body and make it stay in tip-top condition for as long as it possibly can. It doesn't mean there's some magical cure. What it does mean is that you give your body the best chance you're going to have at healing itself because our body is its own best master and letting it do what it does best by feeding it the right raw materials is what it absolutely needs. Uh, Flowers have been topical this morning, so let's go there. What causes some flower scents Uh, to become evident only in the evening or night and not in the day? Well, plants have body clocks just like we do. They can keep track of time. And in fact, there was an outstanding piece of research that was done in England in the last 10 years or so where scientists showed that plants are actually doing quite complicated maths because 
plants store energy in their leaves and in their stems and they store that energy in the form of starches and they make the energy during the day through the process of photosynthesis where they capture energy from the sun, they pull in carbon dioxide from the air and they use a chemical reaction to produce sugars which they then turn into starch which is their energy store. Now they always use energy but they can only produce an excess of energy during the day. So in the same way as if you've got solar panels on your house you need somewhere to store the energy those solar panels are producing otherwise at night time you're going to go without power. So what the plants do is store up the starch in excess during the day and then they use some of it at night to keep themselves going when the sun isn't shining ready for the next day. But the plants would be losing out on the opportunity to grow if they just had loads of stored energy hanging around and they didn't do anything with it. So the plants do a crafty bit of maths and they know how much energy they've stored, they know what time the sun's going to come up in the morning and therefore when photosynthesis can switch back on, that's like the power coming back on, and so they calculate how much they can grow and how much of their energy store they can use with respect to the amount of time it will be before the sun comes up again and then they grow at the maximum rate. Isn't that amazing? So in other words, plants are using a body clock which is ticking in each of their cells, coordinated by the sun, to work out how to run their metabolism. They use the same body clock to work out how to make seeds and flowers at the right time of day and also at the right time of year. And they also use the same techniques to work out how to run their smell production to make themselves maximally attractive to the right sorts of pollinators and some pollinators are not bees that are active during the day they are night active animals like moths moths do a huge amount of pollination and you need to therefore make your plants accessible and attractive to night active pollinators like these moths how do you do it well you link the production of certain smells and the opening of flowers to time of day and that's exactly what the plants do what a beautiful story. I'm going to be looking at my plants a little differently from now on. Morning, Naked Scientist. What is the day? What is why is it dangerous for you when your appendix bursts? And what is its purpose? Keith wanting to know that. Hello, the Keith. The answer to that question. You will find your appendix on the end of your cecum. Where would you find your cecum? Well, if you start at the where your gut opens into the outside world, not to put too delicate point on it, and work your way backwards, if you traced a finger on the outside of your tummy, you would go up the left-hand side of your tummy to where your diaphragm is, the top left, then you go across towards the top right, and then down towards the top middle. And where you finish with your finger, that's pointing at your cecum, which is where your large bowel starts. And hanging off the bottom of your cecum is this thing which is more strictly known medically as the vermiform appendix. And vermis in Latin means a worm. And it does look worm-like. And it is this funny little uh, worm-like thing that sticks out from that part of the gut. It's a blind-ending pouch, if you like, off the end of your cecum. And in some animals, it's very large. In us, it's much smaller. And we wonder if it's a bit vestigial. It's something that doesn't do very much for us. It's one of those things that we had and relied on more in the past, but probably plays a lesser role in an anatomically modern human, although we, we don't know 100% for sure. There's no evidence that taking one of these things away makes people any less healthy, so that argues that probably it's got a, a more vestigial function in the modern era. But in there is a lot of lymphoid tissue. Your immune system is very active in your appendix, and so it may have a role perhaps earlier on in life in helping us to build the right sort of immune response to tolerate the right sort of microbes and reject the wrong sort of microbes. Sometimes stuff can get stuck 
in the appendix, you can get what's called a fecolith, which is a hard bit of poo, effectively, that goes in there, blocks it up, and then becomes inflamed. Sometimes that inflammation just subsides on its own accord and you have a bellyache for a few days and then you feel better. But sometimes it becomes an ongoing cycle which gets worse and worse and worse and the inflammation weakens and breaks down the tissue and this can cause an abscess in the appendix where there's pus and infective organisms and an inflammatory response and this can sometimes burst out through the layer that covers the gut inside you and it can pollute your peritoneal cavity. A, this is extremely painful, and B, it's a medical emergency because any inflammation in the peritoneum can spread very quickly and it can cause a state of sepsis, which can cause circulatory collapse and, and it can kill people. And the, this needs to be dealt with by a surgeon very, very promptly. And, and it does happen from time to time, and we, we see this happening. It doesn't kill everybody, and some people, when this happens, they, their uh, lining of the stomach wraps around the inflamed bit and walls it off. And so you just have a really bad stomach ache for a while and you get very desperately unwell and then you recover. Um, and you can sometimes Sometimes find this in patients when you go in there for some other reason later and you find everything stuck together and it's evidence that the, the basically the appendix has had some trouble in the past but we don't know what the role of the human appendix is but in some animals it's very very important for fashioning and molding and sustaining their microbiome the combination and spectrum of microorganisms that live in the intestine and a uh, big thank you for that question uh, we're gonna go to a wildlife question from Maxine Dr. Chris, I'm a wildlife documentary fanatic, and in India's Gujarat state, the lion population has been seen to move from the jungle to the beaches in search of food. Can lions thrive on seafood? Lions will act in whatever way they can in order to feed themselves, and animals are incredibly adaptive, and... Uh, there's a lovely story. I, I interviewed a scientist a few years ago who's looking at monkeys that eat shellfish. And uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what part of the world she was working on an island. And she, there were some monkeys that had learned to go down to the beach. They would find the right sorts of shells at the right stage of the tide. They would knock them off the rocks with other, off, with other rocks. And then they would eat the shellfish. Uh, monkeys have learned to do that and adapted and evolved to do that. And animals are extremely adaptive. If they're hungry enough, then they will go from where the food is easiest to get it's most abundant and where they have the best lifestyle they may have to change their lifestyle in order to, to get food and you can think of another example polar bears when um, polar bears are being placed under pressure by climate change retreat of ice loss of their normal feeding grounds and food sources they will encroach on humans who are also encroaching on them in order to steal food from them because they're being forced to because they're desperate so animals will go wherever they can to get food to sustain themselves but what they're doing is making a balancing judgment between where can I live, where can I reproduce, where can I do this in the greatest safety where I have to invest the least effort in finding food. And if you rob them of their normal food source, you will force them to slowly adapt and change to try to obtain food sources that they can get wherever they can get it. I mean, at the end of the day, cats do like fish, and these are felines, and so if they can find some fish and that kind of thing, they'll eat it. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. In fact, some people suggest that uh, primates and their seafood diet have contributed to their cognitive growth nearly um, and that in relation to fossil finds here in, in the Western Cape specifically uh, interesting the seafood diet and cognitive development uh, do you know of any correlation? 
Well, there's an argument that there are certain fatty acids, the omega-3 fatty acids, which are present in a greater abundance in things like oily fish. And as these are in great demand in the human body and especially in the developing brain because we cannot make them. The reason they're called essential fatty acids is because we cannot make them through our own metabolism. They are they are, they are vitamins and the brain depends upon a trace amount of them, a bit like an engine in a car depends on trace amounts of engine oil to keep the engine running smoothly and if you supplement with them it does ensure that a brain does develop to its maximum developmental potential because if you don't have enough of them then you can retard the development of the nervous system and that may in fact uh, it may in turn impact on function so that yes there is an argument that if you can access these sorts of things in reasonable quantities then you maximize the potential of the development of your nervous system and therefore your potential cognition wow okay so uh, another medical question in uh when a person blushes how does this happen and why does it feel like it's hot ivan in plumstead with that question hello ivan he doesn't tell us i presume why he blushes or what he's done to make someone blush (laughs) no no not forthcoming well the answer is humans are really visual species we devote maybe a third of our brain just to decoding what we're looking at that's how neurologically hungry our visual sense is so it makes sense as a social species for us to make maximum use of our visual abilities to communicate with each other non-verbally so some of the signals we send out do not involve words and speech at all they are visual signals some of them might be things like crying some of them might be smiling some of them might be looking angry but color and colour of the face also plays a huge role. We pay and put enormous emphasis on looking at faces. If you show people a picture and you trace where they look at that picture, you will see that they dwell very heavily in terms of how long they look at things on the face area. And other animals do this as well. Birds are really very good at telling if, uh, if they're being looked at or not. They can use where the eyes are to work out where the face is and whether they're being watched. And we're the same because we have particular areas of our brain devoted just to decoding what a face looks like and who somebody is and we can tell thousands of faces apart very very quickly because we have dedicated brain areas just for doing that very thing a question for the naked scientist and of course uh, dr chris smith with us till 10 o'clock this morning does learning the arts music painting etc provide health benefits to an individual particularly as one gets older. That's Neil in Goodwood. He says he's getting older every day uh, and he's learning to play the piano. I realise I didn't actually just explain why why the blushing actually happens, how it happens. I explained why we do it, which is to send signals out. I should just say the reason that we blush physically and physiologically blushing a red face is because you have diverted more blood to the superficial tissues of your face. If you push blood close to the surface of the skin, you can see the redness and A, this changes the colour, and B, this changes the heat, because blood is hot, and if you put hot, fresh blood close to the skin surface where there is the temperature-detecting nerves, it will feel warm. So that's the reason why we do it, to send a signal to each other. It's, it's a vascular phenomenon. You're diverting blood 
to the skin surface and that's why it feels warm and that's how it's achieved and the reason we we make ourselves look red is because red is a quite a potent signal of emotion and it's used to convey either bashfulness or embarrassment but also and, and humiliation but also anger and animals including us are quite scared of the color red and if a team plays in red there's statistical evidence showing that f footy teams are much more likely to win in a red sh strip than they are in a blue strip for example and other sports the same there was a study done on the olympics a few years ago where they looked at the color of people competing in greco-roman wrestling matches for example and they found that people who wore red won statistically more often than the opponent playing in blue so the red color is and of itself also a very valuable signal can you remind me of the piano playing question please of course yes um uh, the the question is: Does learning the arts, music, painting, etc., provide the health benefits to an individual, particularly particularly as one gets older? Neil says that he's getting older every day, quote unquote, and he's learning to play the piano. Well, there's this old notion of use it or lose it, and the idea and the argument goes that if you do something like a cognitive skill, a crossword, that kind of thing, maybe the improvement you see is generalizable and helps to sustain and maintain cognition across a range of things i think it's probably more subtle than that and i think probably that that, that you're able to do these tasks argues that you're probably starting from a strong starting point if you were already showing cognitive problems you would struggle to learn to do a new thing and to, to keep it up but at the same time i think there is an argument that using it or losing it is valuable doing these things practicing these things does get you doing things it does return joy and enjoyment it does include it does make you more likely to socialize and so on and those sorts of activities do mean that you're healthier in general and have a wider social network which we know goes along with good health so i think it's not one single thing where there's a bit like i was saying earlier if you take the nutrients out of the food they lose their nutritional value I think it's the same. It's not just I do one thing and that benefits my brain because I think it's part of a big picture where all of these factors play together and doing these things translates into a healthier body and a healthier mind, which means we're ultimately overall healthier and happier and therefore probably likely to live longer. We have uh, 30 seconds. I don't know if you can do justice to this follow-up question about plants. I would have liked a more chemical explanation. The scent molecules must undergo some change to make the scent evident to human noses. Uh, that's the follow-up question. Can you help in 30 seconds, Dr. Smith? I'll try. The, the answer is also a temperature effect, where plants increase their metabolism, and by, they do that by burning more energy. This drives up the temperature of the cells, and this can help to drive off the scent and make the scent be apparent they also do it by literally making the scent the pathway that metabolizes and chemically produces the substance that smells ramps up its activity controlled by the body clock to make more of the stuff at certain times of the day so you can use both temperature and you can use the production rate of the material in order to enhance the scent and we're going to have to wrap it there. Big, 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 big thank you to the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith answering the questions that keep us awake at night.